Welcome to Kingdom 101. It's great to have all of you back. We want to also welcome our listeners on SoundCloud, and we want to thank you for continuing to journey with us. Let's pray together, and let's get into this evening's teaching as quickly as possible. Heavenly Father, once again, thank you, Lord, for an opportunity to study the Word. And Lord, we pray that as we dive into Scriptures, we ask Holy Spirit, please come, please empower us, and please enable us to understand. And Lord, as the Word is declared, I pray that hearts will be ready to receive it and also to respond correctly to you. We bless you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Does this person look familiar to you? Some of you may recognize her. Her name is Marie Kondo. And if you have been following the news lately, recently, there was a little bit of publicity about her. She has her own program on Netflix, and I think she's also featured on YouTube. Um, she's actually the, like the packing expert or the decluttering expert. And she has the method that's called the Con Marie Method. And the way that she helps people declutter is that, you know, you look at your items and you ask yourself, does it spark joy? And if it sparks joy, you keep it. And if it does not spark joy, you throw it away. And then later on, you organize everything else uh, around that. It's the rave at the moment. People are so crazy about it. People need help and advice on how to declutter and how to pack your own household. But just a note, just in case you're not aware... Um, her method and her principles are really based on the religion that she follows and it's a practice that they follow also. So just be aware that there are certain basics down there that uh, she draws from. Well, the question is not how effectively you can declutter or how well your room or your house is organized. I think the bigger question is how long it stays that way. Have you tried decluttering before? Have you tried packing, right? I mean, you can shift things and you organize things. It looks really efficient for a while. And before you know it, you're back to square one and you have to start all over again. Speaking of decluttering, my wife is a master declutterer. She's an expert in this. And I hope she's hearing this because I'm praising her. Um, because our family, you know, in our household, there are nine of us and we need space in the room. If we don't do it regularly we get into a little bit of a challenge. However, as often as she does it and however well she does it, both of us observe something and we both agree. If there's an empty space on a flat surface, it is very quickly filled up. Have you noticed that? Right? You just clean your table and you see how quickly you put something on it. And it doesn't even have to be a table. It could be a chair, it can be a couch. As long as there's a flat surface, it doesn't take long for something to be placed on it. And I suppose that's why this guy called Aristotle, he made a comment and he made a statement called horror vacui. I hope I pronounced it correctly, that's Latin. And this actually means that nature abhors a vacuum. Nature abhors a vacuum. Well, horror vacui actually means the fear of emptiness. In other words, emptiness needs to be filled and will be filled. Put it another way, the unoccupied will be occupied somehow. The question is, with what? And how is it occupied? And we notice this in life. You think about your own life. In the physical and natural world, there's a tendency for us to want to fill emptiness. 
For example, do you struggle with an empty calendar? Now, some of us are hoping for a more empty calendar. But I can tell you, we struggle with it. The moment we have some space in our life, we tend to want to fill it up. Uh, We keep complaining there's no time. But the moment there's a space, we get bored so quickly and we find activities to occupy ourselves with. Uh, It's the same with life, isn't it? We're trying to search even for a meaning in life. And if there's a certain emptiness, we will fill it up with funny things, with crazy things. We'll find a cause. We will pursue something. Uh, We want to be a little bit more spiritual. You see, so where there's emptiness, it will be filled. And it needs to be filled. The question is, with what is it filled? Now, in the natural realm, we notice this. But you know, it also happens in the spiritual realm. And as we will understand from today's passage, there's something there that we can learn from, and I hope that this principle would make us be more aware and perhaps respond in a more correct fashion. So let's go to Matthew chapter 12, verses 43 to 45. That's our text for today. Matthew chapter 12, verses 43 to 45. When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places, seeking rest, and finds none. Then he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it empty, swept, and put in order. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first." So shall it also be with this wicked generation. I'm going to share with you a couple of observations. One, two, and then in the third one, we're going to talk about the main point. But the first two observations and pointers are important for us to take note of. Firstly, and this might surprise you, Jesus was not conducting a deliverance seminar. It's an interesting point I'm making here. Because when you look at this passage... It is one of the most referred to passages by deliverance ministers. Every time we talk about demonic uh, oppression or possession, they would point to this passage and they will teach from this. Uh, In fact, I've heard a teaching that says something like this, that you shouldn't go around casting out demons if a person is not a believer yet or if this person is not ready to believe. Why? Because according to this passage, if the person is not a believer or does not want to believe, then you're going to leave a vacuum when the spirit is cast out. And this guy, the the spirit, will take seven others, crazier ones, come back, and this person will be in a much worse off position. So they mean well, right? It's for the good of this person. You shouldn't cast out in case seven others plus himself come back in. Well, it sounds right until you realize that actually there's no such biblical prerequisite. I mean, Jesus didn't ask, you want to believe first or not? <laughs> uh, you sure and you'll be filled properly, you know? Uh, otherwise, when I cast this out, seven others will come back later on. There was no prerequisite. There was no interview session whether or not this person is a believer or is ready to believe in Jesus or not. See, I believe the Jews knew about exorcism. We've already established this in our previous teaching. They had their own exorcists and they have been practicing this for quite some time. In other words, this phenomenon or what Jesus had just described is not something new at all. 
I believe they understood this. They knew that a spirit can leave a person and, you know, as it goes out into the dry places, final resting place, and then seek to return. Now, quickly, such some terms that I think we should uh, clarify and maybe point out. An unclean spirit, or in some versions, they call it an evil spirit. Now, this is synonymous with a demon. And in those times, a demon, the word demon, can actually also refer to a false god. And these gods are false ones, and they are wicked, and they are evil in nature. But we all know that these false gods are really fallen angels, and they come to oppress people, and also to cause them problems, and also to cause a lot of negative effects upon them. Now, as they go out, we also realize from Scripture that they tend to wander about in the wilderness or in empty places or in dry places. And that's why Jesus makes this comment to say that when a spirit is cast out and leaves a person and they have nowhere to go, they go to a dry place. That's where they will hang out, in other words. And what do they want to do? They want to find rest, but they can't find any rest. They're trying to find a dwelling place. Their desire is to inhabit either humans or animals, and the purpose is to destroy or to use these vessels to carry out their deeds and their plans. And so when they're out in the wilderness or these dry places, they cannot find any of these places to dwell in. They can't find an alternative dwelling place. What the Spirit will do is to go back to the last checkpoint, and they'll say, I'm going to go back to my house. They consider this their home, and not only that, he says, well, I'm not going to go back alone. I'm going to bring seven others with me, right? So if you understand from a Jewish exorcist's point of view, they would have known this, they would have understood this. Jesus was not stating anything new. In fact, I would look at them like professional house cleaners, you know, (laughs) because exorcism was concerned merely with the deliverance of demons, that's all. It's like, you know, we will, if we have no time, we will hire some professional cleaners. They come and they clean up and whatever we have messed up. And later on, if we continue to mess up, we'll call them in once more and they'll clean up the house once again. And so you begin to see a vicious cycle that when the demons leave, they find no place to rest. They come back in, they bring others, and this is the worst situation. What will they do? They will call the exorcists again. They will try one more time. Imagine if they cast out eight demons, how many will come back in? If eight bring another seven with them, each of them, uh, it's not going to be a pretty picture. And so if it becomes too difficult, then they leave the person to suffer the consequences. And so it's like in the natural, you know, if you, if you have to keep cleaning up your house, after a while you become a hoarder. You're not just a hoarder, you are a compulsive hoarder. What do they do with compulsive hoarders? They don't help you anymore. They send you to IMH. It's a mental condition, right? And they leave you to suffer the consequences. And this might have been the situation or the scenario. So Jesus was not teaching a deliverance seminar. He's not teaching people how to cast out demons because they were already doing so in that time. Second observation Jesus was still addressing the Pharisees. Now, don't take these three verses out and try to make a case with it by itself. You won't have the right context. 
understand that Jesus was still continuing his discourse with this group of leaders or these Pharisees. He was responding to their opposition, remember? And he was wanting to warn them of certain consequences. So we have to understand the context. And as we look back at the entire passage, which we have been slowly making our way through, we find a very interesting thread that cuts right through it. Let me help you with this. It actually starts in Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 to verse 30. Remember, Jesus casts out the demon. The guy was blind and mute. And then the Pharisees come and accuse him of casting out demons by the power of Satan or Beelzebub. But really, Jesus says, look, it is deliverance by the power of the Spirit of God. Then Jesus teaches them in verses 31 and 32, you be careful because if you blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, it's not going to go well for you. So you're going to cross that line and you don't even know you're coming really close to that. Let me tell you, change your mind, change your perspective and stop speaking things against the Holy Spirit. In Matthew chapter 12, verses 33 to verse 37, then Jesus says, you watch your words because a bad tree will produce bad fruit. A good tree will produce good fruit. But you know that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth will speak which means you need new hearts. You cannot change this heart by yourself. How do you get a new heart? By the power of the Holy Spirit. You need new hearts by the Spirit so that you will then grow good fruit of the Spirit and then the words that come forth will then be productive words, they will be helpful words, they will be good words. Thereafter, in verses 38 to 42, Then the people ask, okay, don't talk about words now. Show us a sign. So they go back to a sign. And Jesus says, I'm sorry, no go. I've shown you so many signs. There'll be no more signs. Only one more sign for you. The sign of Jonah. Three days, three nights in the belly of the fish, right? Or in the heart of the earth. And that was the last teaching. It was really about the death, burial, and finally the resurrection of Jesus. How? By the power of the Holy Spirit. And in fact, he goes on, he talks about Solomon and one who is greater than Solomon. Why? Because he will speak and he will minister by the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. Now, can you see a thread that is forming here? Right? It's about the Holy Spirit. You don't speak against the Spirit. You need new hearts to bear fruit of the Spirit. You move by the power and the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. And so in verses 43 and 45, which is our passage for this evening, it's about being possessed by the right Spirit, the Holy Spirit. And not only that, but to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And going on, pushing right through to the end of Matthew chapter 12, which we will get to very soon, in verses 46 and 50, it is about being adopted by the Holy Spirit and then being sent and doing the work of the Holy Spirit. When you look at context, you begin to see the whole big picture. It's not just about casting out demons. It's not about be careful in case seven other demons come back into you. There's a much bigger picture. The whole perspective is a greater one. The Pharisees started by questioning the spirit by which Jesus cast out the demon. Jesus turned it around 
into a kingdom teaching about the Holy Spirit. Everything is about the Holy Spirit. It's about the Spirit of the Christ. It's about the Spirit of the kingdom of this King that has come to declare His gospel. You see, these first two observations are important because if we miss it, then we miss the main point of what Jesus is really saying. We make it into a little deliverance exercise and as helpful as deliverance is, it's not the final thing. There is a more important point that I believe the Lord is trying to show all of the people there. And so thirdly, and I believe this is what the point is all about in these three verses, Jesus was teaching yet another object lesson. He was using the deliverance of the man. He refers back to that sign and uses it as an object lesson. He was making another important point. And actually, he was giving another warning to the Pharisees and to his people. Now, as you listen to this, you might be wondering, how do I know this? How do you know this? What is it that gives it away? What is that one line that actually shows us that Jesus was teaching something else? It is because of that last line in that last verse. So it shall be with this wicked generation. So it shall be with this wicked generation. It starts out with a spirit leaving a man but it ends with Jesus applying it to an entire generation. It's not about the deliverance of a man per se, it was about the devastation of a generation. See, this is not the first time the word generation is being mentioned by Jesus. If you look at the verses in Matthew 11 verse 16, that's the first time he says it. To what shall I liken this generation? They are a stubborn one, they are a fickle one, they are a choosy and a picky one. Whatever is given to them, they will never be satisfied. And then in Matthew chapter 12 verse 39, he calls it an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. They keep looking for signs and yet they do not want to believe that sign. In verse 41, the men of Nineveh will rise and condemn this generation. In other words, he's issuing warning after warning to tell them, look, come on guys, every generation must be responsible for its own decisions. And you have to be careful the way you choose and how you respond. He goes on in verse 42, the queen of Sheba will rise and condemn this generation. You see, another warning telling the people of God to say, please, can you understand what I'm saying? These are Gentiles and they respond. How about you as people of the kingdom of God? And finally, in verse 45, so shall it also be with this wicked generation. Not the first time he mentioned this word generation. And that's why you see it's not just about casting out the demon of one man. Jesus was showing the people the implication that if you don't understand, if you miss this principle, your entire generation will suffer a consequence. At this point, then we ask the question, why was this generation considered evil and wicked? Why was Jesus so hard on this generation? What was He really referring to? Now, you know, He was sent to His own people and these were considered the kingdom of God. They were people of the kingdom. 
and they missed everything about their own king. You know the history of Israel, the people of Israel. How because of idolatry, Baal worship, disobedience, spiritual adultery, it resulted in Israel being exiled. But after the exile, through the mercy of God and the plan of God, God brought back the people into the land. And so they learned a simple lesson and they said, we're determined never to commit that same error again. So what did they do? They proceeded to clean up their act. They started to put the house in order. And you can read in the Old Testament, in the time of Ezra, in the time of Nehemiah, when they came back and they rebuilt the temple and they reinstituted worship and they started to teach the Word of God again, there were many, many reforms. Reformation was the order of the day. They said, look, come on, no more, no more of these wrong things. No more of this idolatry thing. And so in a way, the spirit of idolatry was cast out. It was pushed out. No more idolatry. We will not have any one of these things anymore. The worship of God was cleaned up. It was put back in order. But you know the funny thing about it? They did everything right on the outside, but somehow, inwardly, Israel remained empty. Reformation is good. Reformation was good for them. And it was helpful, it was needful. But there was no relationship. Are you hearing this? Reformation is good. But without relationship, reformation handles the outside and the inside remains empty. The outward practices looked noble and it was good, but inwardly there was a void, there was an emptiness. And over time, the spirit of idolatry actually returned. But this time, in the form of the spirit of religion. There was a spirit of religiosity that came back in. And so they did everything correct. It looked really nice on the outside. But all it was, was a shell of religiosity. But you remember, it's not just one spirit coming back it brought along other forms and other spirits that came back and it sort of mutated. If you're not careful, religion can do these things to you, right? A spirit of pride can come back in. You can have legalism that becomes the order of the day. You get a spirit of entitlement to say, if I do this, then I deserve something like that. A hypocrisy came in. Because they would tell people, this is how you would do it, but they will not do it. Why? Because they couldn't keep it up themselves. There was a spirit of greed because as they aligned politically, prosperity was also the order of the day and who could get more and out of the situation would be the one who win. Uh, there was also a spirit of apathy where the rich were getting richer and the poor were not being looked after. Along with that, a spirit of complacency. Uh, we are God's people. We are back into the land. We are worshipping Him correctly right now. Uh, nothing untoward will happen to us anymore. Uh, then there will be a spirit of compromise. Uh, can you see we are so consistent, we are so religious, we are so spiritual, we are doing everything according to the Word of God. Um, I think a, small, a few small things you know, should be okay. Lah, huh? uh, we can let it go. And so we compromise 
And the worst thing of all these would then be a spirit of deception will set in. Can you see how dangerous it is? And I believe Jesus was revealing something to the people of his day. Because they were trying to follow the law to the T, the Pharisees meant as well as they could, but they set up certain things that they themselves were not able to accomplish even for their own lives. And so although they tried very hard not to bring back that spirit of idolatry, it came back in a different form. It came back in religiosity and they suffered from all these consequences. And the latter state is worse than the former. Now you might be wondering, what do you mean it's worse? I mean, isn't it good that they are worshipping and they are reading scriptures? You know, at least with idolatry, it is obvious. You know there's something very obvious that there is wrong. But with a religious spirit, it is very hard to spot. And it doesn't stay that way. It gets worse. It compounds. It becomes worse and worse and it spreads like a disease. It's like a cancer and you don't realize it at all. Over time, we have this phrase where it's called a form of godliness and there's no power at all. But the thing is this, you don't realize it. You live with it and you begin to contain it and you begin to think it is okay. Let me share some examples for you to compare. I mean, if you look at countries or nations around us today, many of these can be considered first world countries. Very highly organized, extremely efficient, technologically advanced. So on the outside, everything looks really good. But do you know, just because outwardly it looks okay, doesn't mean that it is correctly occupied inside. The spiritual condition of a nation can still be empty. Can still be empty. They can even be considered Christian nations. I mean, call it what you like. And even worse, especially when you, when you, when you have this label, Christian nation. You can have a spirit of religiosity. You can have churches all over the place. You can have conduct services, seminars, conference. But the spiritual condition can still be empty. Why? Because of all these things. Because of all these things, you are deceived, you are apathetic, you are complacent, you are compromising, but you are doing, the, inverted commas, the right things. And you don't realize it. Idolatry is much more obvious. At least you can address it. But some of these things, you can't nip it. Push it all the way down. Imagine an organized or an institutional church. Everything can look very clean and much in order, right? And on the surface, and especially with social media marketing these days, you only post the good things, right? You only show the nice side of things. The church can look very full. The church can look very alive. But within it, it can be empty, it can be asleep, and even dead. And these are not my words, you know. I'm actually paraphrasing and quoting from Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Jesus gives a very stern warning and assessment to the church at Sardis. He says, you have a reputation of being alive, but actually you are dead. That's a very scary statement. You have a reputation. 
In other words, your PR is very good. <laughs> what people see on the outside, wow, this church is jumping, man. Wow, this is revival, you know. And then Jesus comes and He gives that kind of assessment. You only look good on the outside, but I know exactly what's inside. You are empty and you are dead and you are asleep. You see, if you follow Christian principles and biblical principles, things will always work. But it's not about just working on the outside and the reformation, although it's good. It's about a relationship with and a submission that you are willing to give to the king. It's a very, very different thing. You know, sometimes as consultants in the business places also, they always say, oh, you have to teach Christian principles. And it's correct. But people may be following it just to make it work, right? They may not be submitting entirely to the king. They are only wanting to use the principles because it helps them in their businesses and that they do well and they earn more money. Thank you, Jesus. Praise the Lord. So we must be careful, you see, because on the outward, it can look really good, but on the inside, you can still be empty. How about the cultural or the nominal Christian? You know what's a cultural Christian, right? That means... Culturally, you have grown up in a church setting, in a Christian setting. You know how to speak the right phrases and um, you have been culturized as a, as a Christian. You can talk the right things, quote the right verses, post the right things. But actually, you're just nominal. Huh? You're just going with the flow of the language, the subculture of church. So on the outward, you could be very cleaned up. You, you look like everything is in order. But are you unoccupied? Or are you wrongly occupied? This is what you have to ask yourself. Outwardly, you can be very religious, you know. You can attend service, you can go for your cell groups. You can even be very busy and engaged with Christian activities, but somehow inside you can still be very empty. And the scary thing is this, the emptier you are, the busier you become. This is the paradox, right? The, the emptier you are, you think you need to do more. And so what do you do? You sign up more and you sign up for more things. You participate in more things and you tell yourself, I'm a good Christian. I'm doing a lot of things right now. But somehow, it doesn't make it. You know there's something more and all these activities are not really helping you. It's a vicious cycle. And it's scary when you look at that vicious cycle, when we understand it from the words of Jesus, you're clean up, put in order, your life seems to be okay, but somehow inside, you are still empty. And without a right relationship with the Lord, you know that nothing else will work. Other things will come in. And the enemy is happy to play along. The enemy is just happy to use your language even so that he will deceive you and you stay deceived yourself. Let's look at this word empty. You know, in the Greek, it actually comes from a root word that means leisure or to be free from labor. And there are other words that can be translated from that. You can use the word vacant. So if a house is vacant, it's empty, it's free from labor, it means nothing is going on inside. Uh, it can be unoccupied. Another word can be idle. And if you remember the word idle, we just studied this not very long ago in our previous session, where Jesus says, I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment. The word idle means no work or unproductive work. 
So it's not that you have no word to speak. It's that the words you speak, they are unproductive. They don't contribute to the purposes of the kingdom. They are useless in that sense. So be careful. What are you saying? Are you declaring kingdom matters? Are you speaking kingdom mandates? Are you speaking into being and position kingdom purposes? If not, the words that we are saying and talking about, they are idle. They are useless. They do not achieve kingdom purposes. And so let's put it another way. A person may be cleaned up. um, Your life can be put back in order, but you can still be unoccupied or idle. In other words, it's not productive. You're okay. Your, your life is all right. Huh? You're doing okay. You're not like uh, out in the streets or in the dumps or something. It, it seems okay. But somehow, your life can still be idle. For Christians, we are clean up. We are restored. But the question is, are we rightly and purposefully occupied? If not, then we remain unoccupied. We are empty. We are idle. Guess what? emptiness needs to be filled and will be filled. Either we will fill up with some crazy thing or some other spirit will be happy to help you fill it up with some other thoughts and in some other way and we are deceived and we think we'll be okay. Have you heard of this phrase before? An idle mind is the devil's workshop. An alternative is idle hands are the devil's workshop. So if you are not doing things for the kingdom, guess what? You might be doing things on behalf of what the enemy wants to do. An idle mind, an unoccupied mind, an empty mind, a vacant mind, where it's not purposed for the things of the kingdom, it is playground for the enemy, right? He will come in and whisper things and give you suggestions and point you all over the place except the purposes of God or the assignments that the king wants you to be uh, moving on. The enemy is so happy to fill it with his lies, his deceptions, as well as his purposes. Let me give you a couple of verses that Paul himself, he was warning the people. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 11. We hear that some among you are idle and disruptive. So you be careful, you know, when you're unoccupied, and you have nothing else better to do, you do other things. You disrupt. Instead of being purposeful on a kingdom assignment, you're unoccupied, your mind is vacant, the enemy fills it with something, you fill it with something, you actually do something else. You disrupt. You cause trouble. And maybe that's why the church has so many troublemakers. Paul goes on. They are not busy. They are busybodies. I love the play of words here in NIV. They are not busy, but actually they are busy. They are busy bodies. And that's why I'm telling people in Archippus Awakening, if you don't know your assignment, hang out with God, right? Focus on the aligning. Let God do the assigning. Your assignment, I can tell you what is not. It is not complaining. It's not griping. It's not being a busybody anymore. My dear brother shared just now, right? We've got no more excuse. We've got to take ownership of this faith that we have. How long more do you want to blame pastors and leaders and the church? You see, if we remain unoccupied, then we start to fill ourselves with other things and we'll be prompted to do against what the kingdom of God is all about. 1 Timothy 5, verse 13. And besides, they learn to be idle, wandering about from house to house, 
And not only idle, but also gossips and busybodies, saying things which they ought not. Very scary, you know. If you are not on kingdom assignment, I tell you, you talk about anything and everything uh, other than the things of the kingdom. But you don't realize it because you go to church, you attend cell group, you participate in some of those things, and you think you're really good. And this is the craziest thing, you see. Your state is much worse than before. At least before that, you know you need Jesus. And now you think you have Jesus already, but you're not really relying on Him. You deceive yourself. So it's really, really very, very scary. And so if you are empty, you're trying to occupy yourself, you can occupy yourself with so many things and still remain empty. And I told you it's a vicious cycle. The emptier you are, the busier you become because emptiness needs to be filled. And you will be filled with the cares of this world. You will be filled with the things of this world. And in fact, you will be influenced by the spirit of this world but not with the purposes and the assignments of the kingdom. And so the biggest question or questions that we have to ask out of this little teaching is this. What are you occupied with? Do you know you have been cleaned up by the blood of Jesus? Do you know you have been restored because of the work of the cross? But my question is, are you rightly occupied? Because if you are not, then you will occupy with something else. What are you occupied with? Who are you occupied by? And these are important questions for you to contemplate and even to consider. There's no such thing as sitting on the fence. And I hope that you see this illustrated clearly. Where you're right in the middle and on one side would be other spirits or other influences that would be unhealthy. But on the other side will be the Spirit of God. But many think that they can just sit on the fence. And to them, being a Christian just means let's enjoy church, let's be secure about salvation, we are going to heaven, just don't do too bad things. As long as I stay okay, I don't lie, I don't cheat, I don't go casino, that's, that's cool. So they avoid the bad things. But just because you avoid the bad things doesn't mean that you're doing the God things. Can you understand what I'm saying? So to them, I just sit on the fence. I, I'm, I'm not a bad guy. In fact, compared to others, I'm quite good. So you avoid the bad stuff. I don't dabble with those kind of things. But you realize you either choose one or the other. The longer you stay unoccupied by the Spirit of God the sooner you will be refilled and distracted by the wrong stuff again. As quickly as you want to push these things out, you've got to be filled with the correct spirit. Otherwise, the wrong things will come back in and it's going to come in with a vengeance. Friends, you don't get to remain neutral. That's the whole point. You have a choice to make. There's no middle ground. If you're not being discipled by the Spirit of Christ, you will be discipled by the Spirit of this world. Do you realize this? It's one or the other, you know. You don't just sit in the middle and say, okay, I don't do this. You want to have your feet in both places. It's not possible. Remember Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 12, verse 30. Whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. You look at the way he words it. You're either with me or you're not. 
And so if you're just sitting on the middle ground and you're not really with him, then you're actually against him without even realizing this. And this is, again, a warning for the people of God. You're either with Jesus or you're against him. There's no demilitarized zone. In war, they call it a DMZ, right? A demilitarized zone where when you come to this zone, you cannot fight. There's no battle down there. We can talk and negotiate. There's no such thing as that. There's a spiritual battle that's going on. You need to know which side you're on. You're either on this side or you're on the other side. Just because you say, I don't do the bad stuff, doesn't mean that you're really moving on the kingdom purposes of God. You cannot sit on the fence. I give you an example from Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 15 to 20. Do you remember this is the time where Moses was uh, giving instructions to the children of Israel before they went into the land. And he tells the people, I set before you now life and death, blessings and cursing. And he says to them, let me give you a hint. I help you with your decision. Choose life. Every time I read that, I'm like, I mean, that's a no-brainer, right? I mean, if you set before me life and death, of course I will choose life. Why must you tell me to choose life. And one day I realized the impact of that statement. Just because you don't choose death doesn't mean that you choose life. If you don't consciously choose life, you may unconsciously choose death. I realized why Moses said that. He wasn't going to leave it to chance. He's going to tell the people, you want to choose correctly? Let me tell you, lah. I'll give you a, a little clue. Choose life, okay? It's like parents telling the children, there's this and this. But please, huh, choose this. It's like Aberdeen. I mean, come on, lah. You, you expect them to choose that. But it's true, isn't it? If they don't consciously pursue life, if they don't consciously pursue the things of God, you will be easily distracted and may unconsciously choose something else. And the principle applies here. There's no middle ground. If you don't choose to be occupied by and for the Holy Spirit, you will be preoccupied and occupied by all the wrong stuff. And Jesus is giving a stark warning to the people. He said, you are deceived. You know, this whole generation is wicked, is adulterous, but you don't realize it. And when he passed that kind of a statement, no wonder they wanted to kill him. No wonder they got upset with him. Friends, there's no middle ground. There's no demilitarized zone. You cannot sit on the fence. The emptiness that's within us seeks to be filled, and it will be filled. The question is, what are you filled with? Who are you filled by? I know the title of this message is Unoccupied, but I want to say that we should be owner-occupied. I remember this phrase because when we were applying for our HDB flat, the HDB officer asked, is it owner-occupied or are you going to rent it out? And you notice when you rent it out, people don't look after the house for you, right? But when it's owner-occupied, you look after it well because you are the owner. And the houses of ourselves, my house, your house, as well as the house of the people of God, that's us. It's not a building. It's the people. We are to be owner-occupied. And this should not come as a surprise to us. We shouldn't look at this and say, oh yeah, huh? you mean it should be? No, it shouldn't be a surprise to us. 
Because we know in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, it says clearly, you are a chosen people, right? a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession. In the NIV, it says that we are God's special possession. We are His possession. He is the owner. And we should be happy for Him to occupy this house. We shouldn't be looking for anything else or any other alternatives. We are God's special possession. If you're not convinced, then Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? You were bought with a price. You are not your own. You are owner-occupied. Don't push the owner one side and invite other people in for a party, right? Don't push the owner one side so that you become unoccupied and you stay empty and try and fill yourself with so many other things and crazy things. Paul then says, if you are then a possession of God, then be possessed by Him. People are demon-possessed, but we should be spirit-possessed. The right spirit, capital S. But not only are you a possession, now that you know that, then he tells the church in Ephesus, be filled with the Spirit. Be occupied with the Spirit. Be filled. Don't be vacant. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 18 onwards. Do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, messy, quarrel, fighting, but be filled with the Spirit. And don't get the wrong understanding of this phrase. To be filled with the Spirit is not how loud or how long you speak in tongues. That's a wrong understanding. Paul never says be filled with the Spirit and then start to babble in tongues and so on and cast out demons. He doesn't talk about that at all. After you're filled with the Spirit, you'll be speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. You notice there's nothing about casting out demons, nothing about the power talk down here. To be filled with the Holy Spirit, he compares it with someone who is drunk with wine. When you're drunk with wine, you're under the influence and the control of that liquor or of that spirit, or of that alcohol. Paul is really reminding all of us, to be filled with the Spirit means to be controlled by the Spirit, to be influenced by the Spirit. Friends, it's not good just to be cleaned up and to be set in order. We are to be under the influence of the Holy Spirit. We are to be owner-occupied. Because when you are occupied by the Spirit, you will be occupied for the Spirit. Can you see the difference here? It's not just about participating in some church work or doing some Christian stuff. We are to be so occupied by this owner when we are influenced by him, when we are under the control of the Holy Spirit, that we will be moving out with the purposes of the Holy Spirit. If we are not occupied by the Holy Spirit, there will be so many other things that crowd out the Holy Spirit. We can even be deceived that we are doing okay as Christians because we do the Christian thing. 
And do you know that this is really a little trailer for the next session in verses 46 to 50. Matthew chapter 12, verses 46 to 50. Right at the end in verse 50. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So this is a trailer for you. Don't miss the next session. You see, we can't understand this if we are not first occupied by the Spirit, then we can be occupied for the Spirit, and then we can be moving out on kingdom assignments. See, when we have the Holy Spirit, we can discern spiritual perspectives and priorities versus worldly ones. Because the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, knows the mind of God, knows the things of God. We have been given the Spirit and not the Spirit of the world. We should be occupied with the Spirit. We should be filled with the Spirit so that we understand what God is doing, what God is saying, and how God is moving. When we are occupied by the Holy Spirit, we are able to discern then between Christian activities and kingdom assignments. We must be careful. Do you know we can do a lot of things without the Holy Spirit? And we can do quite well. Thank you very much. If you are on kingdom assignment, you cannot do without the Holy Spirit. That's the difference. When you are occupied by the Holy Spirit, you are able to embrace and endure the trials and the challenges that come. Paul says this, now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. You see, everything is about the will of God. Paul is saying you pray to the Holy Spirit, let the Holy Spirit pray with you and for you because he knows what the will of God is. And if you are moving on assignment according to the will of God, you need the Holy Spirit to empower you, to strengthen you, especially when you go through a very, very difficult time. And if you're moving on kingdom assignment, you need the Holy Spirit to endure and to persevere. And so let's bring this to a close. Matthew chapter 12, verses 43 to 45. Friends, this is not a teaching about deliverance. Sure, we can learn something from it, but that's not the main point. This is a teaching about the Holy Spirit. Jesus is asking us to learn from the example of the Pharisees and of Israel, God's kingdom people. We are God's kingdom people today. If we are not careful, we can commit the same mistake and be likewise deceived. Don't remain empty, idle, or unoccupied. Be occupied by the Spirit. Be occupied for the Spirit. And let me make one point here. Once again, I say, miracles, signs, and wonders all point to Jesus. The signs and the wonders are not for themselves. And as helpful and as needful as deliverance and healing is, it is not the end. You see, if we miss this point, and we only focus on the deliverance and the healing, then we become ministry-dependent and ministry-focused. That is why you see a lot of people, they're always seeking deliverance after deliverance. They're always coming for prayer after prayer after prayer. Why? Because they can be set clean, they can be put in order, but if they remain empty and unoccupied and not influenced by the Holy Spirit, it's a matter of time before you need help again. 
And it gets more and more challenging and more and more difficult for this person. All the miracles and the signs, they point to Jesus. My pet peeve is that today we keep trying to name a spirit and we're trying to cast out a spirit of this and a spirit of that, forgetting that once that is done, the key is being filled with the Holy Spirit. It's not for you to always identify a spirit of gluttony, a spirit of Korean drama, a spirit of WhatsApp or, or Facebook, you know, and you try and cast all this spirit out. It's not going to work. Seven others are going to come back. You're going to deal with another big problem. It's not about these things. It's about pointing to Jesus and be rightly occupied with the Holy Spirit. Be reminded that the spirit of this world is alive and kicking. If we are not filled with the Holy Spirit, we'll occupy ourselves with all sorts of activities, with entertainment, all crazy nonsense. Do you remember that emptiness seeks to be filled? And we will try and fill it in our own way. You can even come to church and appear all clean and in order and you still bluff yourself. You can do the churchy stuff and you still miss the real deal. The enemy is way too happy to help you with that. And so as I close, let me ask you a final question. How's your house? What is the condition of your house? Don't look at your church. Don't look at the, the group that you meet in. I'm just asking about you. How's your house? And I'll say spiritual decluttering is good and it is recommended. And so I say clean up, yeah. Put things in order. But don't remain empty or unoccupied. Make room and space for the Holy Spirit. Be filled with the Holy Spirit because it is only the Holy Spirit who can fill us adequately and satisfactorily from the inside out. So friends, be owner-occupied. Be occupied by the Spirit and be occupied for the Spirit. Let's pray together. Lord, we want to give you praise and thanks for Jesus. We thank you for the work that is done upon the cross. We thank you, Lord, that at the cross, he defeated all his enemies, O oh Lord. And these have no power over us unless we attribute power to them. And so I thank you for this truth that you have opened our eyes to, Lord. That as you have cleaned us or washed us, Lord, by your blood, as you have restored us by the work of the cross and you have put us back in order, Lord, you desire that we do not remain empty anymore, but to be filled with the right Spirit. And I pray, Holy Spirit, will you come? Fill us once more, Lord. Fill us once more. We yield ourselves to you, Lord. And someone has said before, Lord, it's not how much we have of the Holy Spirit, but really how much the Holy Spirit has of us. And so I pray this evening, O Lord, Will you remove everything that does not belong to you? Lord, remove every garbage and mess in our lives, Lord. Declutter us once more. But Lord, we don't want to remain unoccupied, empty, idle or vacant. We pray, Holy Spirit, fill us afresh this evening, Lord. I pray for ourselves here. I pray for everyone who's listening in even to this recording. Holy Spirit, have control over our lives. May we be occupied by you. And may we be occupied for you. And we bless you and we thank you, O oh Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.